1: Imagine looking into the eyes of a child and seeing someone different than you expected. Seeing eyes full of pain and regret.
2: Eyes full of fear. Eyes that know too much about the world. Both the tragic and the beautiful. Even if it was only a momentary glimpse, it would stick with you.
1: The young aren't supposed to know these things. Naivety is their freedom the freedom you once had, the freedom of hope for the future before the realities of the world intrude.
2: And yet, what if you did see something mature in their look? Something beyond their years? Something like another life entirely?
1: This is a real phenomenon.
2: The explanation offered up? That these children are recalling past lives.
1: But is that possible?
2: Can there be empirical evidence for reincarnation?
1: And does rebirth really await us after death?
2: In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth.
1: Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard.
2: And I'm your host, Claire. This is our second episode exploring the mystery of Shanti Devi and the phenomenon of past life remembrance. A young girl from Delhi in the 1930s, Shanti attracted a lot of local attentions when she claimed to recall her immediate past life.
1: Shanti said her past life had been that of Lugdi Devi, a pious and kind woman from the city of Mathura.
2: There was no concrete connection between Shanti and Lukti, but something strange was going on here. This week, we'll try to cut through the noise and find whatever truth there might be in the story of Shanti Devi's reincarnation.
1: If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. and While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps.
2: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com.
1: When we last left eight-year-old Shanti Devi, her family in Delhi had just received a visit from Kedar Nath, the widowed husband of Lugdi Devi. However, Shanti's parents, Prem and Rang Bahadur, feared what would happen if they continued to follow this thread and allowed Shanti to travel to Mathura.
2: But when the news went public, the decision was taken out of their hands.
1: A few months later, in 1935, Shanti's family received another unlikely visitor, Indian independence leader and spiritual icon, Mahatma Gandhi.
2: According to Lonerstrand's biography, Gandhi held Shanti in his arms as she told him her story. He then turned to her parents and told them the following.
1: Quote, You can't prevent the girl from confronting her destiny. You can't oppose the law of karma. Nobody can. Everything is governed by karma. Karma is life. What is needed is more truth. Never step aside from the way of truthfulness, whatever it may cost.
2: It was settled in November of 1935, shortly before the girl's ninth birthday. There would be an investigation.
1: Family friend and respected lawyer Tara Chand Mathur, along with 15 other respected Delhi officials, would join Shanti and her family on a voyage to Mathura.
2: The plan was as follows to observe and record Shanti Devi's visit to the areas specific to Lugdi Devi's past, such as her childhood home and Nath's house.
1: They would also record her interactions with locals that knew Lugdi Devi while she still lived among them.
2: This meant friends and family members of Lugdi would be meeting Shanti, and the investigative team would do its best to record the girl's spontaneous reactions.
1: Shanti, though, was most excited to see the Devar Kadish temple. It was the beating heart of Mathura, dedicated to the worship of the god Krishna, and it had been Lugdi's spiritual refuge during her short life.
2: All in all, the trip was designed to be skeptic-proof. The team would be around her at all times, monitoring to make sure Shanti's parents weren't feeding her information or in any other way conducting a fraudulent claim.
1: Yet the only surviving full record of this investigative trip is in Story Lannerstrand's biography.
2: And this isn't a verifiable scholarly work. While Lonerstrand certainly met with Shanti Devi and others close to the case, it was only after many years passed.
1: Of the original investigative team, only Tara Chand Batur remained open about discussing the investigation with Lannerstrand. Outside of that... Lannerstrand only met with Kadar Nath and Shanti herself. In the end, despite the wealth of information that the book provides, it has a limited source base of only three people.
2: As your dutiful hosts, we admit, even we are skeptical of all of the details of this account. That's why we can't just dive into the history of the investigation in Matura. Not yet.
1: If we hope to truly explore every aspect of this mystery, including the investigation at Matura, we first need to learn more about what exactly an accurate investigation into reincarnation claims looks like.
2: And before we can do even that, we need to take an anthropological look at the belief of reincarnation across history.
1: Otherwise, we can't rule out secretive motives or manipulative accounts when it comes to Shanti Devi.
2: The research tactics of Dr. Ian Stevenson will provide us the proper framework to examine the case.
1: Let's narrowly define reincarnation.
2: For the rest of our episode, we will define it as Stevenson does in his own research. Reincarnation is the survival of a personality after the death of the body.
1: Simply put, a personality can be proven by the existence of memories.
2: Let's move to the second question. Where does reincarnation take place? Is this something that only occurs in countries in Southeast Asia, where Hinduism and Buddhism and belief in the karmic cycle are most prominent?
1: If so, it would be pretty easy to write off as a simple case of religious belief. But the stats prove this wrong. By the 1970s, over 20% of Western Europeans, primarily Christian or agnostic in faith, believed in the existence of past lives.
2: By the same metric, 20% of Americans and 26% of Canadians believed in reincarnation. And by the 1990s, the American belief went up to 30%.
1: But believing that reincarnation only recently made its way into Western thought would be a mistake. This is what Greek philosopher Pythagoras wrote circa 500 BC. Quote, After death, the soul enters into the land of the bodiless, where it must free itself from all its faults. Then it must once again inhabit a body and commence a new earthly life. End quote. This idea has been with Western thought since the beginning, even if it dropped away over time. Up until the 6th century in Europe, the idea of past lives wasn't opposed in Christian doctrine. Then came the Council of Constantinople in 553 A.D., There's no official record banning the concept, but after this date, reincarnation vanished from almost all Christian doctrine.
2: Elsewhere, belief in reincarnation carried on. It was dominant in Eastern belief systems and religions of Asia. It was also present in large groups of Shiite Muslims in Western Asia.
1: Interestingly enough, cultures in West Africa retained their own interpretations of reincarnation, even as missionaries tried to fully convert them to either mainstream Christianity or Islam.
2: Finally, in Northwestern North America, the Inuit tribes and others had their own tradition related to past life recurrence.
1: Now, not all of these interpretations are the same.
2: Tibetan Buddhist lamas, for instance, believe they have the ability to exert influence over the next life through dedicated meditation.
1: Others like West Africans and North American tribes don't invest in a moral value system like karma on top of reincarnation.
2: All of this provides two important points. One, reincarnation is not purely an Eastern philosophy.
1: And two, its origins are ancient and geographically diverse. This is an idea that popped up in ancient Greece, ancient India, ancient Africa, and ancient North America. Like belief in gods, it seems to naturally occur to diverse human populations, and to such a degree that it has been recorded and passed down to this day.
2: So here we arrive, back again in the 20th century, with the historical context of reincarnation in place. Philosophically the idea had become palatable again and there existed a range of experimental basis in a diverse set of cultures
1: researchers like Stevenson led the charge and began by focusing not on the doctrinal differences between these cultures but the shared signs and symptoms
2: Stevenson narrows these signs and symptoms to a list of 5 general categories
1: first is deja vu This is when a subject receives a strong sensory recognition when they're in the midst of doing something that they've never done before.
2: An example would be a subject studied in Delhi who received, over the course of multiple months, auditory and olfactory visions of the ocean, although they themselves had never even seen open water.
1: The second category to look out for are dreams and nightmares. Any unconscious activity is, of course, suspect. Dreams often contain fictitious and completely insane information.
2: Yet, in many of Stevenson's subjects, they had recurring visions, like a young woman in Sri Lanka having a nightmare about falling rocks and the death of a woman she saw as her mother.
1: Later in her life, the young woman realized she was dreaming of an earthquake in India that happened decades ago. Searching through record books, she found the faces of two who died A woman and her child.
2: It was the woman from her nightmare.
1: Stevenson hypothesizes much of what cannot be explained during our sleep is caused by the forgotten memories of those who came before us.
2: Stevenson's third category is meditation.
1: This is most strongly linked to the Buddhist tradition, especially the Tibetan Lamas. But Stevenson has found that meditative states often induce states similar to those from deja vu or dreams and nightmares.
2: The fourth category of reincarnation evidence occurs when the subject undergoes significant trauma.
1: One of Stevenson's European subjects first recalled his past life after losing both his wife and daughter in a horrific accident.
2: While there is the easier explanation of post-traumatic stress-induced delusion, Stevenson once more turns to the unconscious
1: because this subject's visions of a past life had nothing to do with a wife or child. He wasn't trying to fill in the lost space by remembering another happy family he once had.
2: Instead, he recalled the life of an austere and somewhat lonely old man in a country he could not identify.
1: Stevenson doesn't understand why this man's trauma would cause such visions, or why the man might make them up in the first place. Instead, He sees this as paranormal evidence.
2: Now, I know many of you, our listeners, must remain skeptical, even after all of this.
1: I feel the same way. So far, Stevenson's categories of evidence are supremely subjective. Analysis of them can spiral into many directions.
2: But Stevenson agrees with you there, too. He knows that barely anyone in a scientific field takes the subject of reincarnation seriously.
1: So, that must be why he puts particular weight on his fifth and final category of evidence.
2: The most significant bulk of his research time has been spent investigating the recollections of young children.
1: Let's allow Stevenson to speak for himself here.
2: Quote, I value so highly the spontaneous utterances about previous lives made by young children. With rare exceptions, these children speak of their own volition no one has suggested to them that they should try to remember a previous life. And at the young age when they usually first speak about the previous lives, their minds have not yet received, through normal channels, much information about deceased persons. Moreover, we can usually make a satisfactory appraisal of the likelihood that they have obtained normally whatever information they communicate about such persons."
1: Stevenson means to look to the spontaneity of these child subjects' responses and find authenticity simply sitting there, staring him directly in the eyes.
2: So let's examine some of his most interesting cases.
1: Through this, we hope to then look back at the Shanti investigation with clearer eyes.
0: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message And now let's continue our story.
2: To start things off, let's take a very similar case to Shanti's, that of Gopal Gupta, who was a boy in a lower class Delhi family in 1956.
1: One night when Gopal was between the ages of two and three, the Gupta family had a guest over for dinner. Gopal was asked to carry the guests empty glass of water into the kitchen for a refill.
2: But there was a hesitation in the boy. A shocked look appeared on his face. After a moment, he refused. He said he wouldn't do it. He was a Sharma. It was beneath him.
1: By the time he was four, Gopal offered up more concrete details. He believed that he was a wealthy man from Matura named Shaktipal Sharma.
2: He claimed that he owned a company called Sukh Sancharak, and that in a quarrel over money, his brother had shot him.
1: As they later reported to Stevenson, the family dug deeper into this and discovered that a man with that very name and business had died on May 27, 1948, killed by his own brother.
2: Gopal even visited Matura, though this preliminary visit was not recorded and the child never wanted to return.
1: Until the age of five, his behavior remained strange, and his family had a hard time getting him to drop his entitled attitude.
2: Stevenson rates the strength of this case as somewhere in the middle. Although the Sharma murder was widely reported, even in Delhi, neither family claimed to have ever heard of or interacted with one another.
1: This is backed up by the fact of their complete separate class status. The Guptas and the Sharmas would have never spoken And yet, Gopal knew the Sharma's mannerisms, as well as their family history.
2: He knew, for instance, that Sharma was killed after his wife refused to allow him to lend his brother any more money.
1: The Sharma family kept this detail to themselves, never stating it in any police report or newspaper that the Guptas would have seen. Yet, Gopal knew it and stated it with Stevenson's favored attitude, spontaneity. He wasn't prompted to give this information. Indeed, as no one in his family could have known about it, it was impossible for him to know this.
2: However, Gopal Gupta forgot nearly everything about his supposed past lives by age 11.
1: This is common in the investigations Stevenson researched. As he stated, an aging mind becomes clouded with fresh sensory information and memory that overwrites any retained experience of a previous personality.
2: But there are some outliers. Take Suleiman Anderi. Born in Falluha, Lebanon, on March 4, 1954.
1: His family were Druze, a derivation of Islam that held reincarnation as a central tenet.
2: Unlike many other cases, Suleiman did not begin speaking about his past life until age 11, and he continued to recall details much later in his life.
1: Suleiman attributed this to his fear and confusion early in life. He often had dreams that he was a respected tribal elder, known as a mukhtar, with a full family in the nearby town of Sharif.
2: But he bottled up such thoughts until finally, at 11, his behavior began to shift. He became more intensely devout and guarded his family's religious texts like an adult Druze man might.
1: That's when the name came to him, Abdullah Abu Hamdan, Suleyman said this man had owned an oil press and was a respected Mukhtar for many years. Family friends reached out to Jarif locals around 1965 and learned that an Abdullah Abu Hamdan had lived there.
2: The strength of evidence in the Suleiman case is mixed.
1: For instance, when Suleyman was brought to Jarif, he failed to identify any of Hamdan's family members Though he did successfully name each of Hamdan's many children before the visit.
2: He also managed to find a long abandoned road that once led to Hamdan's residence without any guide.
1: One unique factor is that Suleiman's personality was permanently influenced by this supposed past life.
2: From 11 on, Suleiman did not hide his love of holding authority. He gave orders, and people tended to obey. By the time Stevenson met him as a young adult, he was even considering a run for Falluha's local Mukhtar position.
1: Now, Stevenson does admit that the strongest of his cases tend to arrive from places like northern India, Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, the Middle East, West Africa, and the tribes of the Northwestern Americas.
2: But he did record some work in American communities. The evidence tended to be more vague, though Stevenson attributes this to cultural factors.
1: That's why we are more skeptical about the American case of Roberta Morgan. Born in Virginia in 1961, this case didn't reach Stevenson until Roberta was well into her teens.
2: Until that time... Her mother, Shirley, had never given a spare thought to the idea that Roberta's strange childhood behavior might be related to the recollection of a past life.
1: Beginning at age two, Roberta incessantly spoke about another life, living in a house on a hill surrounded by trees.
2: The first time Roberta saw a horse, she ran up to it without fear and even began to climb on without assistance. She said she had always loved horses and had ridden them before this, even though she was barely four years old.
1: One event stood out in Shirley's mind in retrospective. While driving down the highway one day, Roberta became particularly agitated. She motioned toward an oncoming exit that led to a dirt road into the hills.
2: Roberta was extremely upset, saying they needed to pull off here, She wanted to go see her other family.
1: Shirley had had more than enough at this point. On they drove, and soon they began suppressing Roberta's outbursts.
2: Shirley was a Christian of the Assembly of God, and her husband was a strict Roman Catholic. It was time for these fantasies to end.
1: Years later, Shirley came across Stevenson's writings on the topic and reached out to him. But it was too late for any real research.
2: After age nine, Roberta stopped talking about her other family, and claimed to no longer remember having these memories.
1: After sifting through hundreds of such cases, Stevenson created definitive categories of evidence for children's past life recollections.
2: Social and economic background seemed even more important than geography. The biggest similarity between cases in Asia and those in the United States were that most recollections came from children in small towns.
1: Their families were often working class or poor and didn't have higher education.
2: Especially noticeable in the American case studies was the fact that even though these families were Christian, their religion was a more personal one. They were more invested in the teachings of Christ than any written doctrine. There was also a common age when children began to verbalize these strange memories, generally between the ages of two and five. Cases like Suleiman and Derry, who didn't come out with his observations until 11, were outliers.
1: Similarly, most cases would forget these memories by age eight.
2: Stevenson states, quote, "...from the age of five on..." Heavy layers of verbal information cover the images in which his memories appear to be mainly conveyed. Amnesia for the memories of a previous life sets in and stops further communication of them.
1: Why do some cases, like Suleiman Andari or Shanti Devi, remember these visions long past the age of eight? Stevenson's theory is that if the subject actually receives verification that the personality they are recalling actually existed, and beyond that, meets people who knew this remembered personality, the idea of being a reincarnated soul becomes more real.
2: The brain holds on to this information more tightly as the subject comes to identify themselves as someone who actually has experienced the past life of another person.
1: What about the intervals between the previous life's death and the subject's birth? Is there a limit to the distance between death and rebirth?
2: To directly quote Stevenson, the interval between the previous personality's death and the subject's birth was usually less than three years. The median interval of 616 overall cases from 10 different cultures was 15 months, end quote.
1: Some of the stronger evidence, in Stevenson's opinion, was categorized in the behavior of subjects.
2: Traumas and phobias carried over. But interestingly, the strongest carryover always seemed to be when there were class differences between the subject and their past life.
1: Suleiman, Gopal Gupta, and Shanti Devi are all prime examples. If they recalled a past life with more privilege they often felt shame or anger when dealing with the hardships of their lower-status position.
2: Finally, there's the idea of recognitions. This was lucky evidence because, as we've seen, many of these subjects never got the chance to interact with people or elements from their past life.
1: But in measuring these, Stevenson only counted the spontaneous reactions.
2: Again, He categorized spontaneous recognitions as moments when the subject recalled very specific details without any prompting from an outside force. These reactions and recognitions seemingly came from the subject alone.
1: In his opinion, this category of evidence was the most impressive aspect of many cases, and as such, Stevenson heavily weighted these moments in his ultimate judgment on the case's veracity.
2: With all this now floating around in our minds, it's finally time to return back to our prime case, Shanti Devi.
1: By many, she's seen as the best possible evidence for reincarnation the world has ever seen.
2: Is that estimation more mythical than logical? Let's see how her story ends before we make any judgment calls.
1: Our story will continue in a moment, after the break. And now, back to Unexplained Mysteries. On November 24th, 1935, a train pulled into station in Mathura, India.
2: On board was Shanti Devi and her parents, along with 15 highly respected Delhi officials. Chand Matur stood by her side as the temple of Krishna came into view.
1: Shanti was worried that they wouldn't make it in time for the temple's daily closing.
2: She was right to be worried. As soon as she disembarked, a crowd swarmed.
1: And out of this entire crowd, Shanti picks one man to run up to, Ram Chabi, the beloved Jeth, or brother-in-law, of Lugdi Devi.
2: Ram shouted out in surprise when Shanti supposedly asked him about the Tulsi plant Lugdi had left in his care.
1: In mere minutes, one of Lugdi's closest family members was already proclaiming his belief in the streets. The chaos only grew.
2: The investigative team tried to keep Shanti separate as they moved through Mathura not wanting to influence her in any way. They needed accuracy, and this was already a dangerously manipulative environment.
1: But according to the history in Sturi Lunarstrand's book, Shanti amazed the team at every turn, literally. They turned into a back alley.
2: And ran directly into Mahadev Chabi, Lugdi's father-in-law.
1: Shanti hugged him and thanked him profusely. Mahadev had been the one to give Lugdi her beloved churis, the ankle bracelets that Shanti often heard echoing in auditory visions.
2: Shanti and the team moved forward. She was excited to see the yellow house of her childhood.
1: Here the team came against the first sign that Shanti's account wasn't foolproof. The house was white. Some of the skeptics on the team were covertly pleased until the renter came out of the house. Oh yes, he said. He rents from Lugdi Devi's father. The house was once yellow for many years. He only recently painted it white.
2: Yet another mark in favor of Shanti's story. Tarachan Matur was pleased, and his belief solidified.
1: Next, the fact-finding mission arrived at Kadar Nath's home. Kadar himself stood with his new wife and Lugdi's son, Naunita.
2: Shanti ran inside, overjoyed to be back. Kadarnath's wife shuffled uncomfortably, while Nanita looked on in silence. Kadar followed Shanti from room to room. Slowly, the joy faded from Shanti's eyes. Lugdi's jewelry was gone, her wardrobe replaced by the clothes of Kadarnath's new wife.
1: Even Lugdi's beloved picture of Krishna was lost to time.
2: Kadar tried to console the young girl who he believed was his deceased wife, he had kept the churi bracelets.
1: Shanti was happy to see them, but the sadness did not abate.
2: In the background, the fact-finding team was engaged in a debate. Every sign pointed to truth in Shanti and Lugdi's connection. Tara-Chan Mathur was sure of it.
1: Shanti and her family walked outside, dejected after a tiring day of examining a past that was no longer her own. Tara turned to the girl and asked for anything. One more detail to prove herself to the team.
2: Without hesitation, Shanti pointed to the corner of the yard. She said nothing else.
1: The team moved to this empty patch of yard. Kadar Nath came over and laughed. Quote, that's where the well once was, end quote.
2: The water had become contaminated and it needed to be sealed off.
1: But sure enough, when the team uncovered a thin layer of dirt, they found a hatch and beneath it, the well.
2: The team was amazed. Tara Chan felt sure now. Shanti was the real deal.
1: But the girl was depressed. Closing time for the temple had come and gone. She had missed her chance.
2: After a full day in Mathura, the team made their way back toward the train station.
1: They passed by a courtyard and Shanti froze. Inside stood Jagti Devi, Lugdi Devi's mother.
2: Shanti ran to Jagti with tears in her eyes. Jugti was confused, and then she realized who she was looking at. The girl from Delhi. Or maybe, her dearly departed Lugdi.
1: Shanti's parents, Rang and Prem, watched in fear. Would Shanti want to stay in Mathura now? More importantly, could they stop her? Rang told Prem they needed to let Shanti make the decision. Mahatma Gandhi himself told them to seek only the truth. They were slaves to karma now.
2: After a nerve-wracking few moments, Shanti turned back to her true parents. She chose to return to Delhi, but one more surprise awaited her. The Dvarkadish temple had remained open, just for her.
1: Shanti Devi completed her true mission. She returned what she believed was the soul of Lugdi Devi to her place of peace, to the temple of Krishna in Mathura.
2: Once inside, Shanti fell to her knees. She told Krishna that she was Lugdi Devi reincarnated and asked for guidance.
1: Tara and her parents took in the sight of Shanti beneath the beautiful glowing statue of the god Krishna reverberating in the late afternoon light.
2: That night, as Mathura vanished in the distance, Shanti swore that she would one day return and live in Mathura
1: that wouldn't happen. She went to university to appease her parents, and life, as it does for all of us, took her down another road.
2: But Shanti Devi's life was permanently impacted by this childhood recollection.
1: In her early 20s, Shanti swore off all marriage. In her mind, she still was Logdi Devi, and that meant she was still married.
2: Even though Nath had betrayed his promise to her, Shanti would not.
1: During her lifetime, Shanti studied under Maitri Devij, the holy woman of Delhi who had believed in her during childhood. Shanti's ambition was to become a spiritual leader.
2: And, as both Stevenson and Lonerstrand emphasize, Shanti never tried to cash in on her moment of fame in childhood.
1: Instead, she vanished from the news back into obscurity.
2: Some posit this is because her claims were trumped up in the first place and that the only person in the fact-finding mission who truly believed was Tarachand Mathur.
1: Whatever the case, Shanti never fled from questions about her past claims. She always maintained that what she said as a child was the truth, and she lived her entire life according to the lessons she learned. While she recognized her own distinct identity, Shanti honored and carried Lugdi's spirit with her until she died of old age, still unmarried. Until the end, she believed she was the next life of Lugdi Devi.
2: This brings us to the final category of evidence that Stevenson analyzes in his cases. Does the subject have memories about their time in between life and death? Stevenson has discovered two distinct patterns of thought through his many case studies.
1: There are the terrestrial events. In Stevenson's words, quote, the subject remembers events happening to living persons after the previous personality's death. It is as if the previous personality had somehow stayed near where he had lived and died and had monitored the activities of living persons while discarnate, end quote.
2: And then there are the events in the discarnate realm, a non-physical space that can only be described in vague metaphor. Again, per Stevenson's account, this is when the subject remembers being in a metaphysical realm between death and life.
1: Shanti Devi gave statements regarding both states to story Lonerstrand much later in her life, when she was in her mid-40s. After years of meditation, she believed she had fully reconciled the divide between herself and Lugdi. Their memories were now one and the same.
2: So she finally felt prepared to tell the story of the transition between Lugdi's death and her own birth. Shanti spoke in the first person, because she looked back on this event as something that happened to both Lugdi and herself simultaneously. In a hospital in Agra, not far from the Taj Mahal, Nonita was born to Lugdi Devi on September 25, 1925.
1: Shanti said that Lugdi felt her death approaching when they took Nonita out of her arms. Lugdi immediately turned to Krishna, reciting the god's name like a mantra.
2: Shanti claimed that Lugdi kept repeating this mantra over and over until her body died on October 4th. That was when she experienced, the first part of death.
1: The mantra of Krishna filled Lugdi's consciousness. In Shanti's words, Death started from the bottom. The cold crept slowly upward. Even when the heart stopped, life remained in the brain and it filtered into the center called the third eye. Slowly, very slowly, I heard Krishna's name as if through the surge of a waterfall. It was I, myself, who continued to pronounce his name even after death."
2: Shanti believed that Lugdi kept her consciousness aware by repeating Krishna's name. In this way, Lugdi's soul was able to remain near her corpse as it was returned to Mathura.
1: Lugdi's body was taken to the waterside, wrapped in silk and covered in flowers. As a priest spoke a prayer, Kadarnath set Lugdi's body on fire. All the while, Lugdi's consciousness watched on, hovering above the funeral.
2: When the body burned away, the consciousness finally went somewhere else. In Shanti's words, quote, I had no other perceptions other than that of an infinite bright light. I had been led into another state of awareness. There was neither darkness nor light, day nor night, space nor time. This was the second stage,
1: end quote. This fits with what Stevenson defines as an event in the discarnate realm.
2: From there, Shanti claimed it was an indefinably slow process, as her shapeless form was maneuvered through this metaphysical realm, eventually ending up in the womb of Prem Piari.
1: Shanti was born one year, two months, and seven days after Lugdi's death. That fits Stevenson's 15-month median almost perfectly.
2: Lonerstrand asked Shanti, Why? If Lugdi was so dedicated to Krishna that she was able to retain her consciousness between lives, why was that dedication not enough to achieve a state of nirvana?
1: Shanti gave a simple answer. Quote, It was a longing to see my son and a yearning for Nath. It was just a yearning to come back, full of love. End quote.
2: Shanti mused that, as Lugdi, she had made a grave mistake. If she had been able to overcome this longing, she could have joined with Brahma in eternal peace.
1: In her words, quote, It was desire on a low, egotistical level. The best proof that you truly love someone is that you can allow him or her to be parted from you without feeling bitterness. Otherwise, it's only egotism. So I had to experience the third stage of death, reincarnation, end quote.
2: During her interview with Lonerstrand, though, Shanti paused. She thought over what she had said.
1: She edited her response slightly, with a wise tone gathered after years of working with gurus like Maitri Devij. She said, quote, But it's quite right to feel love. Only now I believe it's better to love all than one particular person. End quote.
2: About 20 years after that interview, in 1987, Shanti Devi died. And with her, any more proof about her life or the rebirth of Lugdi Devi? With that, all of the evidence regarding Shanti Devi's case had been recorded and reported.
1: So what do you think? Is there enough to truly verify her claims?
2: In my opinion, there simply aren't enough sources specific to Shanti's history. Lonerstrand's biography is extensive and detailed, but it reads as highly biased.
1: that's a fair point, especially when compared against the stricter research regulations that Stevenson uses in his own cases.
2: The work of Stevenson was more impressive, if not convincing. To me, it does prove that the concept of reincarnation must have some deeper resonance with humanity. Its presence, in many variations, is too great to deny.
1: After all, many religions share elements and narrative aspects. That's the unifying facet of faith and belief, that the unknown has a face and just maybe a will.
2: In the end, it just seems too unlikely that someone could have such a comprehensive experience with death and rebirth, and recall it in such detail. Shanti fits Stevenson's research trends too well.
1: Stevenson also mentions how sensationalized reporting on reincarnation has made true research even more difficult to conduct. We felt the same during our investigation.
2: So, in our final estimation... We must rule against the likelihood of Shanti Devi's story. It just seems to me more legend than fact at this point.
1: But still, it is a beautiful story, if nothing else. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as Parcast, and Twitter, at Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show.
2: A new episode comes out every Thursday. We'll see you next time.
1: And remember, never take we don't know for an answer.
2: Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Jack Bentel, and stars Claire Delamar and Richard Rosner.